The U.S.-dominated world economic order is facing a historic challenge from a rising group of economic powerhouses popularly referred to as the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. With a combined GDP, gross domestic product, that now exceeds that of the G7 nations, these powers, along with their allies in the global south, are seeking to reshape the global market in ways that profoundly disturb U.S. capitalists. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. We are excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week. Thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We say that because we want to encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to this show. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out all of his work at rdwolff.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. Richard Wolff, welcome back. Thank you very much, Brian. Glad to be here. We are so glad to have you once again. Uh, Richard, you wrote a very important article that appeared at least in Counterpunch. People can find it on the June 7th, 2023 to read the article in its entirety. The title is The World Economy is Changing. The people know, but their leaders don't. Interesting title. I'm going to read the first paragraph of what you wrote so that our audience gets the general drift. And I have several follow-up questions about it, but the first paragraph helps frame the big picture. Here it is. The year 2020 marked parity between the total GDP of the G7, that is the US plus its allies, and the total GDP of the BRICS countries, or BRICS group, China plus its allies. Since then, the BRICS economies grew faster than the G7 economies. Now, today, June 2023, a third of the total world output comes from the BRICS countries, while the G7 accounts for below 30%. Beyond the obvious symbolism, this difference entails real political, cultural, and economic consequences. Bringing Ukraine's President Zelensky to Hiroshima to address the G7 recently failed to distract the G7's attention from the huge global issue. What is growing in the world economy versus what is declining? Richard, let's start there. Yes, and I understand and I'm sympathetic 
with the difficulties that many who come to terms with this information on this program or otherwise, I'm sympathetic to the difficulty they have wrapping their heads around this. And the reason is wrapped up in human history. We have had many empires, many economic systems that flourished, that were born, that evolved over time, often did very well, became global empires or as much as they could be global in earlier eons, and then they passed away. The Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, the Turkish Empire, the Persian Empire, I could go on. Here we are in the United States. We were begun as a nation by being part of the British Empire. It settled people over here, killed off the indigenous folks, as we know, with a few exceptions that remain, and set up a little colony here of the great British Empire. Eventually, that empire, like every other one, reached its peak and began to decline. The United States was a colony that broke away from that empire, part of the decline that it inevitably faced. The British Empire tried to stop the breakaway of the American colony. That's what we fought the war about that we're going to celebrate on July 4th, as we do each year. The British lost that war, otherwise we wouldn't have become an independent country. But the British didn't give up. In 1812, they tried again a war against the new little United States. They lost again, and the United States was launched. But notice, the decline of the British Empire persisted across the rest of the 19th and into the early 20th century. And the former colony, the former poor, backward corner of the big British empire, turned history around and became the new empire, and Britain became the de facto colony, which it is today. The reason I tell you this is because we have to face, and this is very difficult, that the United States has a parallel history to every other empire the world has seen. We emerged out of the decline of another empire, the British. We grew and evolved over time, really hitting our stride in the last of the 19th and across the 20th century. And now we have peaked, and now we have begun the decline. And the decline is a lot less of a happy experience in almost every country, in every empire, than the ride up was. And so it is with the United States. We are having increasing economic difficulties. And there's nothing that the politicians who run this country can do about it, starting with the reality that they don't want to admit it that they're in a, an example of what psychologists call denial that is absolutely stunning. They keep thinking the United States is at the top, of the, the United States is the dominant. It isn't. It's still an important factor because it had quite an empire and for quite a century. But it isn't anymore. That's why that article begins with those numbers that China and its allies are the rising economic powerhouse in the world. And the United States 
isn't part of that. For examples, just again to drive it home, 25 years ago, central banks around the world who keep reserves so that we all have confidence in using their currency, their euro, their British pound, their Japanese yen, or whatever it might be, to be comfortable in world trade and use another country's currency, you have to have confidence that if something were to go wrong, that currency will have value, that the central bank of the country that issues that currency will have either gold or something as good as gold to give you if you want to cash in your units of that country's currency. 25 years ago, central banks around the world kept gold and the U.S. dollar, which was, to quote a frequent phrase, as good as gold. And the rough numbers were 70 to 80 percent of central banks around the world's reserves were in U.S. dollars. Today, that number is about 50 percent. Some say a bit above 50, some say a bit below. But whichever one it is, look at what's happened. It took a century and a half to build up the confidence in the dollar and half that confidence has been erased in the last 25 years. There is no make-believe that will make this reality go away. Saudi Arabia, which for many decades has insisted that the trade in oil around the world, where it is the number one player, has to be conducted in dollars. They have recently changed their policy. They are now selling oil, as are other countries, in other currencies, especially the Chinese yuan. I could go on, but let me end with one more example. Every poor country in Asia, Africa, and Latin America that is looking around for who to partner with, who to buy from, who to sell to, who to ask for loans from, who to approach for big development projects that they need to develop and escape poverty, they used to have to go to the G7, the United States and its allies, to banks in New York for loans, to those governments for aid in one kind or another. They were eager to get customers in Western Europe, North America, Japan. Now, in the last 25 years, they all have a choice they didn't have before. For the first time in a century, those countries can play off the United States and its allies on the one hand against China and its allies on the other. They have an option. The United States actually has to compete against the Chinese, and they're losing the competition, which is why virtually every country in Asia, Africa, and Latin America is busy sending trade delegations to China, welcoming Chinese investment, Chinese partners, all the rest of it, because the Chinese offer them equal or better terms than they can get from the United States, Western Europe, and Japan. The world is changing, and my article ends by using the Pew Charitable Trust. It's one of the most 
widely used and prestigious polling institutions in the United States, PEW, Pew Charitable Trust. And they recently conducted, a couple of months ago, a poll, random poll of Americans, asking them what they think about the American economy and its future. Asking them, how do you compare today with what you think will be the case 20, 30 years from now? And over and over again, the huge majority of Americans, 70, 80% in most cases, see that the economy is in trouble, see that the American empire is declining, see that their economic fortunes are dimming, that the prospects for their children are narrowing. And I wanted to show that the nonsense spoken by the way, by Democrats and Republicans stumbling over one another in the rush to deny all that I have just summarized, shows us that we really are having not only a decline of our, our empire and our capitalist system, but we're doing it in a bizarre way where the mass of people have their ears closer to the reality of what's going on, their ears to the ground as it actually is, whereas the people they elect to office are busy make-believe carrying out their denial of a grantedly difficult and scary reality out there. But for those of us that are not committed to denial and to fakery, it's time we face up to these realities. And let me end by suggesting that there are people in Washington clearly who think that the way to handle this situation, the few that admit it, although they keep quiet about it, are busy provoking the BRICS nations into war, provoking in Europe with this sanctions attack against Russia, which A, isn't working, and B, is an attempt to weaken an ally of China, and then the direct confrontation with China around Taiwan, etc. Look, the British tried to squelch, by military means, the new empire emerging. They failed. Two wars, they failed. Then they gave up. It might be nice to learn from that history and not need to go to war in a nuclear age in order to learn the history that what happened to every other empire in the world's history is happening to us too. Our best bet is to try to work out with the BRICS nations a live and let live way of handling what has happened to a changing world economy no longer dominated as it once was by the United States. That is over. 20 countries at last count have applied to become members of the BRICS. The world knows where the future lies. It's a question mostly in the hands of the United States, how it handles its own decline as the process of history unfolds. And you might enjoy, if that's the right word, the irony that one of the factors, not the only one and not even the most important one, but one of the factors that helped change 
the history of the United States and its allies versus the BRICS was the decision by large numbers of leading American capitalist corporations over the last 30 years to move their operations from the United States to China. They did it because it was the profitable thing to do. But they participated, as they still do, in the very change that they now need to pretend isn't their fault, isn't really happening, and can all be lumped under the notion that China is aggressive when all that China is doing is what every emerging economic powerhouse and economy in the history of the world, including the United States, has done before. Richard, there's so many different elements to this topic, and I I agree with you. And again, I want to encourage everyone to read your article that's in the Counterpunch, June 2023. There's the political and military conclusions and this big picture trend. I mean, when you think about it, in 1945, when the U.S. does replace the British Empire and really becomes the dominant power in the world and really the glue to the then almost completely devastated group of capitalist or imperialist countries that have been essentially devastated by the magnitude of violence in World War II, the U.S. emerges And at that time, the U.S. had 4% of the world's population. This was 1946, 45, 46, 4% of the world's population and 50% of the world's GDP. So one out of every two products in the world in 1946 was produced in the United States. So this immense advantage, obviously the political, economic, and military consequences of that were clear. The U.S. emerged as the world empire, as you pointed out. There is a debate going on among some sectors within the Marxist and socialist left about what this trend means. I'm thinking, and I want to get your opinion on one of the, a book I recently read called Imperialism and the Development Myth. It's written by Sam King. He's part of a Marxist group in Australia. The headline of this article, a review of it about imperialism and the development myth, how rich countries dominate in the 21st century. So I want to give you what his take is. He's an economist, a Marxist, but I want to see whether you agree or disagree with his conclusions. I'm going to read like a paragraph to you and to the audience. China and the other third world societies cannot, quote, catch up, close quote, with the rich countries. The contemporary world system is permanently dominated by a small group of rich countries who maintain a vice-like grip over the key parts of the labor process, over the most technologically sophisticated and complex labor. Globalization of production since the 1980s means much more of the world's work is now carried out in the poor countries Yet it is the rich imperialist countries through their domination of the labor process that monopolize most of the benefits. Income levels in the first world remain five and 10 times higher than the third world countries. The huge gulf between rich and poor worlds is getting bigger, not smaller. Under capitalist imperialism, it is permanent. 
And then the final two sentences. China has moved from being one of the poorest societies to a level now similar with other relatively developed third world societies like Mexico and Brazil. The dominant idea that it somehow threatens to, quote, catch up, close quote, economically or overtake the rich countries paves the way for imperialist military and economic aggression against China. And then finally, King's meticulous study punctures the rising China myth. So basically, Richard, what Sam King, and I think there are others who are promoting a similar position, their basic argument is that research and development in the patenting or the control over the property rights of the most advanced, sophisticated parts of the technological process still remains in the U.S. and in the Western countries, say that the the decision now to block China from importing advanced microchips is an example that the U.S. and the Western countries still have this monopoly. And as a consequence, while China can grow in an aggregate sense, it can't really catch up. I think his Political conclusions are the same as yours in the sense that he's against war with China and he's obviously sympathetic to the third world and to the evolving countries. But he asserts that Lenin's basic position about monopoly and its domination, even though the world has changed a great deal in the last century, that this still holds true in terms of the monopoly on technologically sophisticated and complex labor. Anyway, it's a big topic. I don't know if you want to address it, if you've thought about it, but I I just wanted to ask you and see if you did have an opinion. Sure. On one hand, this is a discussion about what is going to happen. In other words, is China going to catch up? Is China the new empire? Will we see a switch from one empire to another the way we did from the British to the American? I don't have a crystal ball. I can't tell you what's going to happen in the future. He can't either, but neither of us can. And I don't want to argue, therefore, about that. What I would like to say is I understand that the Chinese challenge, which is what it is, to the dominance of the United States may, in fact, not pan out. It is. He's right. It's possible that the United States will figure out a way either to accelerate its own development or to retard China's development or be blessed by some accident that accomplishes that for them, and they may escape the competitive challenge that China now makes. But even if that were true, it still is the case that the Chinese challenge to the dominance of the United States is by far the most developed challenge this, the United States empire, has ever seen. Not only by China alone, but China with its allies, etc., etc. I mean, the inability to savagely destroy Russia with the mother of all sanctions during this war in Ukraine is clearly an example of a misjudgment in the United States about the allies that Russia could in fact count on. And those are, above all, China and India, the two partners of Russia in the BRICS. So I am clear that the numbers indicate that while we can't tell the future, we are watching a challenge that has never happened before in the history of the American empire and is a challenge to its roots. 
there's some number here that I think I can help one more statistic to show that. The United States GDP is roughly $23 trillion last time I looked in that neighborhood. $23 trillion, the United States. Okay, Russia's GDP, the one, the country we are in effect fighting in Ukraine, using up Ukrainians, but the Russian GDP last year was one and a half trillion. In other words, the United States doesn't face a competitor in Russia. If the book you're referring to had been talking about Russia, I could see the argument. But the GDP of China right now is of between 18 and 19 trillion dollars, far greater than the Russians can hope foresee being in this century even but very close and catching up to the, the American. Yesterday, the Chinese announced that they anticipate that by the end of this year, they will have grown their economy by 5%. In the first quarter of this year, the United States economy grew at an annual level of 1%. That's why this is the challenge that it always has been. And on the point of high tech, the Chinese have demonstrated what no other country has been able to do, independently develop real competitors to the likes of Apple or Intel or Google or any of the other tech leaders. They have the Chinese separate equivalents. And given where the world is going in terms of BRICS, I wouldn't bet that the United States can hold on to the monopoly it used to have of the most advanced technology because of the challenge, not of this or that European or Japanese enterprise, we've always had that, but of the juggernaut of a collection of Chinese enterprises. So while I can't predict whether the Chinese challenge will in the end be sufficient to be the new empire or not, time alone will tell us that, I am confident in saying that we have a radically altered global economic system because of what this unique model of the Chinese, and I would like to make a, a point if I can about that. The Chinese are not a private capitalist economy. That is, they are not an economy based on private enterprises in which a small group of employers funded by a small group of, of mega shareholders run the show. That's private capitalism. The examples of that are the United States and Britain. China is not that. But China isn't the Soviet Union either. The Soviet Union replaced private employers with government officials. So we had an employer-employee relationship which is what Marx called capitalism, but we had it with the government in the role of owner-operator of the enterprises. China is not that either. China is a hybrid. China is a unique model that mixes together a large number of state-owned and operated enterprises, a little bit like what you had in the Soviet Union, together with a large number of private enterprises, some Chinese, some foreign-owned and operated, 
with the combination, this hybrid, controlled by a very powerful communist party and state apparatus. That's the model the rest of the world sees. And that's the model that has grown faster than the, the Soviets did before or than the Americans have done in the last century, which is why the rest of the world looks upon China and takes it seriously as, to put it in the Chinese words, socialism with a Chinese characteristic. That's a particular model and that's where the world is going, politically, culturally, as well as economically. And that movement of the whole world is, in the end, the most profound challenge to the American empire and the American system that it has ever encountered. Final fact, Richard, and then I'll get your final comment in our last 90 seconds or so. STEM, which stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math, STEM, Chinese STEM graduates outnumber U.S. STEM graduates 8.2 to 1, eight times as many per year. The gap is going to become even wider, according to some of the media reports. Modest predictions see the number of 25 to 34-year-old graduates in China rising by a further 300% by 2030, that would be seven years from now, compared with an increase of around 30% expected in Europe and the United States. Again, when you're thinking about modern economies, of course, the introduction of artificial intelligence, the fact that we're going through and have been going through this Next sort of level of economic revolution, there was the industrial revolution, the high-tech revolution, the high-tech revolution moving at a very rapid exponential way, rate with the introduction of artificial intelligence. When you see the number of college graduates who are from STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math diplomas, 8.2 to 1, and then a 300% increase over the next seven or eight years, the consequences here, nobody really has a crystal ball, but those are pretty staggering numbers. Listen, you should add to them the fact that, you know, I'm a professor. I've been a part of the American academic system all my adult life. Everywhere in this country, money is being withdrawn, particularly from public higher education. Money is being withdrawn from schooling. We are spending our time figuring out what books to ban, what limits to put on, what teachers can teach. The whole thrust of what's going on in this country is austerity when it comes to education. We are giving fewer opportunities to the mass of our students to emerge with the geniuses among them able to develop their techniques. It's not just that the Chinese are doing more. We're busy undercutting our own future mm. by the way we handle our economic problems as it goes now. This morning, a half an hour before we began talking, I came across a description of a the world's largest hydro-solar power plant. It's in the Sichuan, Tibet area of China. It has no equal in the world. It is a vast power dam for water power, combined with an enormous space of solar cells capturing so that the hydro can complement the solar. It's a spectacular achievement in a poor part of China. 
to develop that part of the economy, it will save 600,000 tons of coal burning because it substitutes this clean energy. They are on the forefront of doing all of these things. Of course, those things could be done in the United States. We have the knowledge, the technology, but we're busy saving billionaires from paying taxes, spending enormously on wars, and we're not doing these things. And while the, this dam, this solar hydro dam in China is getting attention around the world, I did a little survey this morning. No major American mass media is saying a word about it. This is where denial and self-delusion comes from. You do not deal with a problem by pretending it isn't there. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolff.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. Tomorrow we'll be talking about the failed coup in Russia. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.